white car and a black car. You cannot park in this. There are two cars parked in the awning down at the end of the street. And you can park in the parking area, but you cannot park under the awning. Under the first two is a white car and a black car. So if you have a question about whose car it is, you, you, you can, must you must move your car. The owner of the building says we can park in his lot, but we cannot park under his awning. The first two. Right. First two. White car, black car. If you own either of those, you're parked under an awning. See Sherry. There's four under the awning. Is anybody by live stream parked under the awning? I don't know. Are you parked under the awning? <laughs> we love you. We bless you. We welcome you, all of those watching us by live stream. We're super grateful. We're very honored that you would be a part of our service, and we're very honored to have all of you here this morning as well. And we bless you. And it's the head of the year. It's the start of the year. And so God's got something good for you. Did you know that? Yes. He has something good for you. So we're going to do hope in a future. And the premise of the, the text for the teaching is going to be Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13. The Bible says this. The Lord says, I know the plans that I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. And you will pray to me and I will hear you. And you will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all of your heart. I will be found of you, the Lord says, and I will bring you back from captivity. What a year to base that promise on. We're going to base our, our teaching this, this month on, on that promise alone. And that God says he has a plan for you. And it's a plan to hope, of a hope and a future. A plan to prosper you. And we want all of the things that God has for us this year. And one of the biggest things that I like about that verse is he promises to bring us back from captivity. There's a lot of things that happen in our lives that end up taking us captive and end up putting us in places and positions that we don't want to be. And part of the promise of Jeremiah 29 is that he will bring us back from captivity if we'll look to him. So we're going to start this off by telling you some things that God can't do. There's a few things God can't do. I don't know if you know that or not. Number one, God cannot lie. He cannot lie. Hebrews 6.17 says, God wants to show us the unchanging status of his nature. He wants his people, it says the heirs. We are the heirs. So he wants the heirs to be certain of his nature. And he does this by two immutable facts. In other words, he gives us an oath. That's the first part. And the other, fa- and the other side is, is he makes the statement that he cannot lie. And so God wants us to understand that he cannot lie. It's one of the things God can't do. Another thing God, that God cannot do is he cannot change. Malachi 3, 6 says, I am the Lord your God, I change not. And then it tells us here in Hebrews 13, 6, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. God can't change. He is who he is. He will not change. We have this idea sometimes that God is always shifting and God is always changing, that God's schizophrenic or we don't know, is God in a good mood? Is he in a bad mood? What, what, what's, what's he thinking now? Jesus is always in a good mood. That's the first thing. He's always in a good mood, and you know what's even better? He's always glad to see you. He's happy to see you, and he's always in a good mood, and he never changes on that. There's nothing that can change him in the way that he is. And the third thing, and this is probably one of my favorite, God cannot break his promises. I love it. God says, have I not said it? Will I not do it? Have I not purposed it in my heart? Will I not bring it to pass? And I'll give you this, Psalm 89, verse 33. Oh, so beautiful. He says, I will never stop loving you. Just pause there for a moment. 
God says, I will never stop loving you, nor will I fail to keep my promise to you. I will not break covenant with you, and I will not take a single back a single word I said to you. People think that God's up there just trying to make up his mind and deciding whether he loves you or not, or whether what he said to you he's actually going to do. And here he tells us, I'm never going to stop loving you. I'm, I'm going to keep my promise to you. I will not break covenant with you. You may break covenant with me, but I will not break covenant with you. This is who he is. And he says, everything I told you, I'm not taking back a single word. If God has spoken something to you or he's given something over your life, the Lord meant it. He meant it. He's not going to take back anything he said. It's if he says, I give you a hope and a future. He tells you, I give you a promise and a destiny. If he's spoken something great and magnificent over your life, he said, I'm not taking it back. If he's called you and he's spoken your identity to you, we had Charmaine here, and uh, we were praying for her, and I'll just tell you something, God, how this is so beautiful. We need to share it. Jesus needs honor, right? Any chance to give the Lord honor, we give him honor. And so Charmaine uh, had something wrong with her, and she had a lot of irregularities with her uh, menstrual cycle, and so she went in, and they said, you've got something on your uh, uterus. I think it's the uterus, uterus cervix. I don't know, somewhere in that range. Uterus, am I right? Ladies, help me out here. I don't have those parts, so they know. So it's, they said that she had something on her uterus. They couldn't do anything for her. They were going to send her a specialist. They did all these scans on her, what, whatnot, and uh, they were planning to give her a full hysterectomy. We were praying for her when she was in the hospital, and so we're praying over her just by faith, and just hearing what the Lord would say, and in the spirit, you know, those of you that are spiritually inclined, you'll understand this, and I'm praying, and I'm in the spirit, and I can see, like, almost like the Lord's hand was being laid upon her, and I could see his hand was moving, and so I'm hearing the words that he's saying, and I'm trying to pray the words that he's saying, I try to pray what he prays, and as he's saying these words, and I keep hearing this word over and over again in my spirit, I keep hearing culver, C-U-L-V-E-R, C-U-L-V-E-R, I haven't the clue what culver means, and so I try to use it in the prayer somehow, you know, kind of like, and Lord, you just release whatever's accumulated on her uterus, you know, and all of a sudden I just felt like the anointing just went, and the Lord's like, wrong answer, Kevin. And so I handed off the prayer, I, I handed my phone to Alex, I said, okay, Alex, I, I go, I need to look this word up. I said, keep praying for um, Charmaine, and I look up the word culver, and it's a term of endearment, a youthful term of endearment, used without discrimination, and it means little dove. Little dove. So we're praying in the spirit over her and hearing what the Lord is saying over her. And he's saying all these things. And I could see his hand was just moving over her, like almost like kneading. And I kept hearing the word culver, culver, culver. So what's the Lord doing? He's laying his hands on her. He's ministering to her. And he's speaking over her. Little dove, little dove, little dove. Words of love, words of kindness, words of tenderness, words of hope, words of future. Lord doesn't take back a single word that he says, so Charmaine's new nickname is Little Dove, so feel free. <laughs> he doesn't take back a single word. He speaks over us. He'll speak kindly over you. He'll speak beautiful things to you, and he won't take back a single word. Number four, he cannot be stopped. Job 42.2 says, everything that you have chosen to do, no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. If God intends a purpose, it will be accomplished. Yes, this is an important dynamic because we're talking about a hope and a future. And really, one of the, one of the mandates upon, upon this church is to call people into destiny. One of the mandates in this church is to teach people to call upon the Lord, to hear his voice, and to move into destiny. That's a 
directive that I feel like God has placed over us. And so it's important that we understand that when God has a purpose, it will, there is nothing that, cannot, that can stop it. So let's just play it this way because we have to understand these pieces. When God has a purpose when it comes to history, nothing's going to stop it. He has a determined course within history. And when he sets that course in action, nothing will stop it. He has a determined course of how history is going to play out. The world will not end in a plague. The world will not end in a flood. The world will not end in an environmental disaster. The fate of this creation is not subject to mankind. The fate of this creation is subject to the one who created it. He's never given it away. And so God has a plan in history, and when he initiates that plan in history, all of the nations will line up, and it will happen. God has a plan in history of when the coming, when Jesus will come again, and when that plan is initiated, nothing will stop it. We don't get to vote on that. We don't get to decide whether it's a good idea for him to come at this time or not. When it happens, it's going to happen. God has a plan and a purpose for your life as well. He has an individual plan and a purpose for people. He has an individual plan and a purpose for churches, corporately and locally, but that plan has variables attached to it. God's plan in history, God's plan for the end of the world, God's plan for righteousness, those things are determined by him and nothing's going to change it. When it comes to your life, God puts a purpose, a plan, and a destiny over that and you must choose into it. This is what's important to understand. God speaks destiny over your life. Many of you have heard words of destiny. You've heard words of calling. Jody, uh, uh, Jody right here, she said when she was 20, the piano player, she's not here today, but um, she, she said when she was 28 years old, she had a prophetic word spoken over her that she's going to sing for nations. Well, I told her within a year, we're going to be around the world, you know, putting this word to nations. And I said, so wish granted. But the point being is, will you align with that vision? I said, you see, Jody, he gave you a word years ago. He's aligning it, but now you have to choose into it. You have to choose into what God has for you. If you don't make choices into what God has for you, it cannot come to pass because God will not do it for you and you cannot do it without him. It is always a partnership. God says, this is what I have for you. And we say yes and amen to that, even even though we don't know what we're doing. Our purpose and the plans that God has for our lives, his purpose is sure, but you have to choose it. You have to align your life with the course that he wants. This is important to understand. The church teaches this idea that everything that God does, it's his will. Your business went out of business? Well, it was God's will. Well, who told you that? My marriage failed, it was God's will. There's reasons why marriages fail. There's reasons why businesses fail, but none of that is God's will, right? God will in his scripture, and particularly when it comes to people, it comes to places and it comes to things is arbitrary and subject to the choices that are made by those people. Jesus said to the children of Israel, I desire to gather you as a hen does its chicks. Anybody know? But you what? You would not. So what was God's will? That he gather his people to himself and he began to brood over them and begin to protect them like little chicks. But he couldn't do it. Why? Because they would not. God's will is that, no, that not none perish but all come to salvation. That's God's will, right? Is everybody going to be saved? No. Can everybody, can everybody be saved? Yes. But not everybody will. Now, is it because God doesn't want them saved? Absolutely not. There's another one. I'll give you another one. Old Testament, Saul. Saul couldn't follow a simple set of instructions. God had placed him in a position of authority, a position of kingship, and every time God gave him a simple set of instructions, Saul couldn't seem to follow a simple set of instructions. 
and he lost his kingship. He lost his authoritative position. He could not manifest his authoritative position because he was disobedient. Was it God's will that that happened? No, it wasn't. The prophet said to Saul, the Lord would have established your kingship forever if you would have just listened. So what was God's will? To establish Saul's kingship forever. But Saul couldn't listen. And so God went and found someone after his own heart. He found another. He went and found David. You understand that? So when people say, oh, my destiny is just going to happen and I don't, have any, I don't have any personal responsibility in it, you don't know what you're talking about. The potential of your destiny is given to you. The calling of your destiny is given to you. But you must choose into that destiny. And you not only must choose, you have to prepare yourself and you have to align your life towards that destiny. Yeah. You've got to rid yourself of everything. Let us cast aside every weight that does so easily beset us. Let us run the race with endurance. Uh, Philippians says, let us press up towards the what? Upward call. Every believer has a call. But there's also an upward call. I want the upward call. So if the calling is upon all of us, and that's normal, and that's average, and everybody's got a call, Christians can't even reach the level of their calling, I'm saying, okay, well, I don't just want the call, Lord. I want the upward call. I want the high calling. I don't want the low calling. I want the upward calling. But in order for me to have that, I've got to understand, A, what he wants from me, and B, I have to get rid of everything in my life that encumbers me from what he has told me I can have. And I have to prepare myself. So when you go into an upward calling, God takes us to the mountain. So it's a high calling. Everything's height. That's why we're elevate, because Jesus is lifting us higher. A, we lift Jesus higher, and he'll draw all people unto him. B, Jesus' whole role is to lift us from where we are to where we are created to be. But in your going up a mountain, you have to prepare yourself for the mountain, right? We did this big trek. People go on these big treks to go up Mount Everest, don't they? People die. And one of the reasons they die is they didn't prepare for the altitude. They didn't prepare for the journey. They didn't prepare. If you go to Everest and you just show up and thinking you're going up Everest, man, you got to prepare. you got to be prepared for the altitude changes. you got to be, pre- be prepared for the, the atmosphere changes. you got to build up endurance. A lot of times Christians say, God's going to give me the upward calling, and it's not going to require anything from me. doesn't mean I'd have to do anything. He's just going to do it. No, dude, you gotta, you got to prepare. You start climbing that mountain, and if you're not ready to walk up a mountain, you get tired. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Right? We go on vacation, you know, you go on these big cruises, right? Just go to like the, uh, Guatemala or wherever, you know, and there's like, oh, we're going to go climb the ruins, the Mayan ruins. You know, when I, I went and I'm thinking, yeah, man, we're going to go climb them thing. You get about halfway up that hill and you're like, oh, I wasn't ready for this, man. What time's lunch back at the boat? You know, you're kind of like that. But we don't, we're not prepared for the journey. And a lot of times we start up this journey and we don't realize the effort that it's going to require us to get to that point. You can have it, but it requires something from you. And you have to be prepared. And you have to not complain when the atmosphere shifts. You're going to go higher. It's not going to stay the same. The temperature is going to get different than it is in the valley. It's going to go hot, cold, rainy, snowy, sunny, the atmosphere is going to change as you continue up this journey. People don't want anything to change. They want God to give them what he's promised, but they don't want any change. The bridge from where you are to where you need to be is called change. Change should be a four-letter word because we avoid it. (laughs) We don't want anything to do with change, but change is required. And what greater time to change than now? So God cannot be stopped. He cannot deny himself. God has a purpose, a destiny, and a plan for your life. But it requires partnership. Man, do we need to understand this. 
we need to understand this. We are taught something that says that God's going to do it for you. If he promised you, where God guides, God provides. Not without effort, dude. Say, what do you think? You're going to help God? No, I'm not. Listen, it's always been a partnership. Adam was created in partnership with the Lord. He was created to partner with him. Always, on earth as it is in heaven. That was always been the partnership, the communalness of God. When Joshua led the people into the promised land, he was required to what? Partner with the Lord. Where did Joshua fail? When he did not partner with the Lord. Know what I'm saying? When Joshua's like, we got this, man. We can do it. And then he fails. Every time he partnered with the Lord, he succeeded. When he failed to partner with the Lord, he he could not achieve what he was called to do. It's a partnership. God cannot deny himself. Second Timothy If you're faithless, God will always be faithful. He cannot deny himself. This is an amazing statement to me because people deny Jesus all the time, but Jesus doesn't deny Jesus. He's he's undeniable. He's immutable. His his nature is undeniable. He is truth. He is self-existent. He's always there. God cannot deny who he is. He is good. He is loving. He is gracious. He is kind. He is eternal. He is forever. He cannot stop loving you. That's the sixth thing. This is probably the most important thing. If you don't know Jesus, the Bible says he loves you even from afar. If you do know Christ, he knows you are called into the beloved and you are considered close to his heart or you have access to his heart. He says, I have loved you from afar with an everlasting love and with loving kindness I have drawn you to myself. What's, What's love? Love is highest good. So God looks at those who don't know Christ and he sees them as a distance from him and he says, I love you. I am working for your highest good even though you're distant from me. What is the highest good of somebody who doesn't know Jesus? To come to know Jesus. So everything God is doing in the life of the unbeliever is to draw them to himself. Everything God is doing in the life of the believer is not just to draw the believer unto himself, but to draw the believer out into who they are and into the destiny that God has created for them. Isn't that what we want for our children? Don't we? Look at your child, right? We want them to become... (laughs) everything that they're supposed to be. We want our child to become everything that they, we want them to reach the maximum level of their potential. Don't you want that for your kid? Nobody says, I hope my kid flunks out of second grade. Nobody says that. I mean, we got bumper stickers. My child made the honor roll at at the kindergarten. You know I mean? It's like, (laughs) you made the honor roll at the kindergarten, you know? Graduation ceremonies. Every grade's got a graduation ceremony now. You know, it's like, it's crazy. God can't stop loving you. You were created by love and you were created for love. God's nature is to benefit others. That's what love means. The highest benefit. He is the only one that has the capacity to bet. You were created for him. He's the only one that can bring that to you. And you were created for love. This is why we respond so much better to love, don't we? Animals respond to love. Everybody responds to love. The whole universe was framed around this concept of love. And it's the number one thing we yearn for. It's the number one thing we want. Love, acceptance, validation. And it's the very thing that he gave us. My wife, we have this, we have this one-eyed cat. This is funny. It was funny to me. And uh, her name is Bonnie. Yeah, we feed her. She's a sweetie. And, uh, but Sherry left yesterday morning really early. And I think the cat snuck in. So when I woke up, in here's laying, here's laying next to me is street cat Bonnie. 
one-eyed Bonnie looking at me, right? And so I'm like, oh, man, I got to get her out of the house. And she's super sweet. And so I'm bringing her out of the house, and she's standing in the doorway like, I'm not going out there. And so then I shake her food, right? Great way to get the animal to move. You shake their food. And then she comes out, and it shakes the food. And then she realizes, wait a second, what did I do? And then she starts heading back towards the door. But that cat won't leave. She's super kind. She's super friendly. It's, it's a funny cat because there's other, these other cats that come and try to eat her food, and she fights them off. But there's another cat that's wounded and is missing a tail because she's missing an eye. The cat that's missing a tail, she lets eat of her food. Isn't that wild? And the other cats, I mean, Bonnie's like, yo, this is my house. You get away from that kitty chow. You know, and she's ready to throw it down. But the other cat that's missing her tail, we call him Bob. We call him Bobcat. So Bobcat comes around and Bonnie lets Bobcat eat. But she won't let any. And it's almost like there's this affinity. You know, it's just wild. Just this, the way that even animals are, respond in those ways. So you're created on purpose with a purpose. God gave great consideration to, to making you. Isn't that beautiful? He didn't just throw you out there. He didn't just make junk. Psalm 139 says, You created my inward parts and you knit them together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I am fearfully, which is the word reverently with attention to detail. You made me with a, in a revered way. You made me in a meaningful way. And you paid attention to the details of who I am. And I am wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know full well. He doesn't make junk. God doesn't make junk and he doesn't make mistakes. Mom and dad may have made a mistake, but God doesn't make a mistake, right? He knew, and he loves you just the same. It even says, my mother and father may reject me, but the Lord will never reject me. There are people that are rejected by human parents. The Lord never rejects you, ever. Who told you that? You have a purpose and a destiny. Reason that you exist, you have a destiny. What is destiny, really? This is crazy. Destiny is the overwhelming necessity. You have this we all know about it, right? We all know when you're a little kid, you're like, I'm born for a reason. There's a reason that I'm on the earth, right? As we get older and life kind of takes effect on us, we begin to silence that voice. We begin to quiet that voice. We begin to get rid of that voice and we no longer can hear that voice or we no longer pay attention to that voice that we had when we were young that felt this need and this drive for purpose. Destiny is an overwhelming necessity. It is an inward drive to establish. Establish what? I don't know. It's related to a must. So there's a must that is in your heart that you were born with that's part of the makeup of the person that you are, and it's a drive. You are uniquely made. We do a thing here called Strength Finders. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of it, but um, I was trained in it by the guy who did the research, and he did 30 years of research. I had an opportunity to get trained under this guy, and when he started laying out the details, because it's an assessment, and how he shows how that through this uniqueness of tests that no one has the same 32 strengths in the same order and the probability of anyone having the same strengths as you, it's like almost infinity. It just, I, I literally, when he was explaining this to me, I felt like I saw the matrix coming down. Uh, and I felt like God was showing me that no two people are the same and that how different and uniquely designed we truly are. And your destiny and your purpose and your inward drive to establish is unique to you. Yes, it'll have similarities to other people, but you have an inward drive and a need to establish something. 
We're supposed to discover that inward need, that inward drive, that inward purpose, and we're supposed to take that and put it before the Lord and let him show us how that integrates or how that relates to what he has in his kingdom. Maybe it's a family. Maybe it's a business. Maybe it's something. I don't know. We have an inward drive. I'm at this place of I don't, not, I don't just want like, like a goal. I want to know my intrinsic nature. This is important to me. And I've trusted my, it's taken me, it's taken me two years to find what I'm about to tell you in 30 seconds, hopefully. It's like I had this thing in my heart. All right, I'm gonna, you guys wanna learn something this morning? Let me show you something. Anybody ever be jealous? Are you jealous of anybody? Anybody? Any honest people here? Okay, let me, let me ask the first question. Has anybody ever lied? Let's raise our hands, okay? Okay, so now we know you're all liars, so let me ask this question. Have you ever been jealous of anyone? Have you ever coveted what someone else has, wanted, has, has had and you've wanted it for your own, okay? While we, what we do, what the Lord has taught me, okay, I'm gonna get controversial, but hey, new things are entering the earth, right? So um, about to get controversial, but what, what the Lord showed me is that in that jealousy and in that covetedness, Kevin, is a desire. It, there is an ideal that you are jealous for. There is something in that jealousy or that covetedness that is an ideal that's relative to you that you don't have. And so what I started to do was begin to process, because there would be people that I would be jealous of. I know I'm a pastor. Pastors pastors seldomly tell the truth. We're preachers of truth, but we don't really admit it, right? So uh, uh, let, me, let me just share that with you. So I would be jealous or I would be coveting of something or, you know, the, the response that I would have, even my antagonism or my, you know, stupid sneering attitude or behavior would, yes, thank you very much. Yes, somebody identifies with me. So was related to a jealousy and God began to show me why are you, what, what is it that you want? And I would be like, I don't know what I want. What is it that that guy has that you want? And I'd go, well... Besides the really cool hair, uh, other than that, I, I, you know, I don't really know. You know. And then I started to press in. And what I started to press into is realizing what I don't want. I don't want this. I don't want his style. I don't want this. I don't want that. And it came down to what is it that he has that I want. And it, suddenly it struck me. He has influence. And I realized the ideal that I'm jealous for that this man possesses is influence. Because the majority of the stuff that he had or this person had, I'm speaking, I mean, there's probably about four or five, but I'm isolating it down on one person. The, 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 the things that this person has, I have nothing against the guy personally, but he just makes me jealous, you know, yeah. right? Yeah. And what is it that's making me jealous? I'm jealous or coveting his influence. And so I realized something about myself, that what I want is influence. Then I would see something else and I would notice this, this same sort of thing, maybe not with the same intensity, but it would be the same sort of feeling. And I began to process that and I'd say, what is it? And it would take me time. This t- I'm telling you, this, t- this took me a lot of time to get to this point because you have, what you're doing is you have to mine your soul. It's not easy to mine your soul. I had to mine my soul and mine it with the Holy Spirit, okay? And be okay with saying, I'm jealous, you know? I'm not jealous. Oh, no, I'm not jealous. I'm a man of God. Oh, I'm not jealous. And I'd be like, why am I jealous of this guy? You know, what is my problem? You know, I know better than this, but why do I feel this way? I know, but I feel what's the problem. So I'd have to deal with that. And I said, okay, influence. Second thing, different dynamic, different thing. Went through it. All of a sudden I realized significance. This person is not influential. They're significant. 
and I want my spirit, my heart, the jealousy that I'm reacting from is a deep ingrained desire for significance. And so I realized I want influence. I want significance. Then I had a third one and the same thing happened to me. And I said, what is it here that bothers me? Not their significance, not their influence. What does this person have that's really annoying me, right? That's causing me this sense of annoyance. And it was legacy. This person is doing something that will outlast himself. And I realized, again, I'm telling you real simple, but this is how I got to this place. I realized those are the, those are the intrinsic drives of my life. I want significance, I want influence, and I want legacy. And so what I began to do is narrow the focus. Every single decision that I make, it has to have those three elements involved in it or we don't touch it. We start, we're doing a preschool. We're still working on it. The building's been delayed for years, but we still have a lease on a building that we're waiting for on a preschool. When it came to me to do the preschool, I asked the question, is this significant? Yes. Is this influential? Yes. We can influence the children. We can influence the parents. Yes. This is significant. This is influential. Will this be legacy? Is this something that we can build out beyond our lives? So I said, yes. Let's say we're going to do, we're going to do it. We start planning churches. We're working with church planters. We're building a whole network and a whole background. And we're starting with 20 church planters in, in India. And when it came to me, and Alex came to me and he's telling me all the stuff his dad does, we support the orphanages. I had no desire to do orphanages. I was kind of like, I don't know, man. I'm like, yeah, we can help you with the orphanages. Then he said, my dad was a former church planner, but he's gotten distracted with all the orphanages. I said, church planner? I go, oh, now you got my attention. You know? And so we started doing it. And I started asking myself, the commitment that we're about to make in this direction has to line up. Is this significant? Yes. Is this influential? Yes. Will this carry on beyond my life? Yes. And so I say yes to it. So there's an idea of not just knowing your destiny or knowing a goal. There's another part of this that's also knowing who you are and beginning to learn the intrinsic values. And it comes out of you. It comes out of the most weirdest place. It comes out of your jealousy. So let me ask you, what are you who are you jealous of? Why are you jealous of that person? Don't, don't ignore the jealousy you know, because we act all self-righteous, like we're never jealous, we're Christians, we're never jealous. Oh, bless God, you know, you know, act like this. No, I'm telling you to mine it. I'm telling you to ask what it is about that person, that place, or that thing that you want. You know, is it security? You know, is it, is it notoriety? There's nothing wrong with having security. There's nothing wrong with having notoriety. So long as you, the notoriety, I don't care about notoriety. I care about influence. Influence. I want to influence. I want to move the game. You see, and notoriety is fine. If you use your notoriety for Jesus, there's nothing wrong with notoriety. There's nothing wrong with it, right? So none of these things are inherently bad in themselves, but in your jealousy and in your covetedness, there's gold there. And the enemy is using it against you. Now, I would have never come to that on my own. That's way beyond my pay grade. But the Holy Spirit taught it to me and he showed it to me. It took me a long time, as it's going to take you. You're going to have to wrestle with it. But I encourage you to look at those things in your life. What is it that that, that, that person has that makes me jealous? What is it about that place, that thing, whatever? Just find that place, whatever that angst is. You have a hunger deep inside that needs to be discovered. Proverbs 16, a worker's appetite works for them, for the hunger is what drives them on. You're hungry for something, Right? That's what destiny's all about. Destiny's about a hunger. Destiny's about a drive. The word for laborer means painful worker. So this is what it's kind of talking about. The job that you do, your occupation. So we have occupation and we have vocation. Occupation's what you do for money. 
you know, pay the bills, right? But your occupation is not necessarily your vocation. The word vocation is the word vox, and it means voice. You're created to have a voice in the earth, right? Maybe it's not a literal voice. Maybe it's through the actions, the deeds, or the person, or whatever it is that you are. It creates a voice in the earth. You're created for that. And so what the Bible's telling you is the pain of the day laborer is hung, and he, he's in painful labor, but he's hungry, right? So you're working nine to five, and you're like, I hate my job, <laughs> but I need to pay the rent. I hate my job, but I got to buy food, Right? And what it's saying is that pain, there's a hunger. You want something more. You want something different. That hunger is what is used to motivate you. What is it that I'm hungry for? What is it that I really want to do? That's what it's talking about. That hunger is to drive you on. Ultimately, the goal would be to make your occupation and your vocation the same. And I told you first service, begin to believe God for it. But you can't ask him for it until you know what your vocation is. What is your calling? And begin to narrow that, narrow that, narrow that, narrow that, narrow that until you understand it. And then begin to ask him, Lord, I want you to make my occupation and my vocation the same. You don't think he wants to do that? Of course he does. Of course he does. But for now, we got to do what we don't want to (laughs) do and still be hungry for what we want to do. But don't be afraid of that hunger. You know, the Bible looks at you and says, look, if you're in a painful laboring situation, that's pretty normal to the human condition. Some people love their job. I'm not down. I'm not against it. I love my job. You know, I used to hate my job. I used to be tortured, you know, and everything I try to do, it would never work until I started doing this. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, Kevin's come home. Look at him. Check him out. And so now all this stuff is developing, which is cool. But my point being is that I understand the pain that goes into labor and the need to have to do a job and do something that you don't want to do to pay your rent, to pay your bills, to do all that. That's all necessary. But I would challenge you to discover what you were called to do and what you were created to do and begin to believe God by faith that he will make those two worlds one. And I believe he will because it's his desire for his people to do just that. Our purpose is lost to us, number one. I'm going to talk to, I'm going to, talk to two different crowds here. So I want to challenge you with that and tell you, let that appetite work for you. So if you're working a job and your job sucks and you don't want to do it anymore, but you need to, then find out what you're hungry for and let that begin, begin a drive and a motivator for you to what you really want to do. What is it that you really want to do? Let that hunger work for you. Our purpose is lost to us. Without Jesus, you're lost to all things. If you're there and you're watching and you don't know Jesus, the first thing I would tell you is you need to come to Christ. You don't even have the potential to know who and what you are without Jesus. Because you're lost in every sense of the word. Without Jesus, you're lost eternally. Without Jesus, you're lost to your purpose. Without Jesus, you're lost relationally, environmentally, and you have no clue who you actually are. In Christ, we have access to these things. So when we get born again, this is where the believer is supposed to operate at a different level. We're supposed to understand that not only are we eternally saved, we're supposed to understand our purpose because we are the people in the earth that have access to that. Jesus is in our heart. We're on purpose with a purpose. We're now connected to the one that created us and set us and and has put us on this planet. So he will now, and we have access to our purpose. We have access to understanding relationships. I use this one all the time. Christians should be experts in relationship. Why? Because we serve a relational God. 
We should understand forgiveness. We should understand restoration. We should understand reconciliation. We should understand the relational dynamics and the preference of one another and the, the, the exhortation and the edification and all of the honor that comes into play through relationships. We should understand how that works because we're created to know. The world's not going to know how relationships work. They're not going to understand principles of honor. And if they do, it's limited. They're not going to understand what exhortation actually is. And if they do, it's limited. All of these things are necessary for relationships. And we should understand that, and we should be living that way. Uh, environmentally, the world doesn't have any clue. What, people are not, they never feel settled. They're always feeling never at home. We should always feel at home. We should always know where we belong and why. We should understand ourselves, what we are, who we are, why we are. Without Christ, you can't know any of that. So rule one, you don't know Jesus. You need to come to know Jesus. Why is the purpose hidden from the Christian? Anybody ever know that? Right? You feel like God's got something for you. Anybody know what I'm talking about? God's got something for me. I know it. I still know what it is. But I know he's got something for me. It's not hidden from you. Say it with me. It's not hidden from me. It's hidden for me. That's right. Do you know why? Jesus wants to know if you want it. He doesn't want to know with your words, oh, Lord, you know I want it. You know I want it. It's the glory of God to conceal the matter. It is the glory of kings and queens, that would be you and I, kings and queens, priests unto our God, to search the matter out. So God hides it in order that he can have some enjoyment and some relationship with you while you search to find your purpose. It's not hidden from you, it's hidden for you. You have to want it. You have to want it. God's looking, if you want destiny and purpose, that is for above average Christians. Most Christians, they just don't ever, this is high level gospel I'm talking about. If you want destiny and purpose, it's available to all, but not all will have it. Why? Because they're not hungry enough to do it. They're not willing to do it. God wants you to pursue it. Ready? I'm going to give it to you. Because there's pain involved in birthing a vision. There is pain involved in birthing a destiny. It's like conception. This is what happens. This is literally the language God is using. When God uses this language, it's the word desire, deep to sire. God sires a vision in your heart, and you're like, poof, that was beautiful. That's so glorious. That's so amazing. Oh, the vision is so beautiful. And we spend all our time surreal in this vision. But when you start to work the vision out and you start to labor to bring the vision to pass, there's a lot of pain involved. Isn't there? Hmm? We retreat from the pain. There's a lot of pain because one of the things that has to happen with the vision is you've got to reconcile things in your life. Uh-huh. There are things that you have to reconcile that do, are not conducive to the vision that God has given you. There are people, places, and things. There are habits. There are attitudes. There are actions that you are already operating in that need to change, and it hurts. It hurts. <laughs> you mean I got to stop talking like that? Yes, you do. Ouch. And we labor for the vision. We labor to give birth to something. And then you have demonic opposition. You not only have the personal pain that's involved in birthing a vision, the devil's not going to give you a clean run at it. Ever. Ever. Promised land. God says, show the Israel the promised land. He said, the devil has something that belongs to you. Do you want it? They had to go and fight for it, didn't they? You have a whole generation that didn't want to fight for it. God's like, that's yours. 
just want to let you know everything you see there belongs to you. But the enemy has it. And you're going to have to go in with me. That's why Joshua partnered with the Lord. Everything I tell you to do, the manner in which I tell you to form, the manner in which I tell you to go up, the way that I show you, I want you to do what I'm telling you to, and you're going to take what rightfully belongs to you. And yet a whole generation that didn't want to do it. And they died in the wilderness. So if you think destiny is average to Christians, it's not. It's exceptional. <laughs> it's exceptional. Most Christians don't even touch it. They know about it. They have a yearning. They have a longing, but they never touch it. They never touch it. Because you've got to cross a Jordan. You've got to leave where you are. You've got to cross a river. You've got to confront things that you don't want to confront. He told Joshua three times, be strong and of good courage. Why? You know why? Because he's saying, Joshua, what you are about to face is going to cause you to lose hope. What you are about to face is going to cause you to be fearful What you are about to face is going to make you think that you're about to lose your life. Therefore, be of strong and of good courage. So we think we're just going to walk into the promised land and it's all going to be laid out for you. When you walk into the promised land and begin to approach the thing that God has for you, it's going to feel like you don't have what it takes. It's going to feel like, wow, this is really going to cost me something. This is really going to have to be a fight and it's going to be. But it's a good fight. You win. It's a street fight. Knife in your teeth, rag on your head. How bad do you want it? Alley fight. That's right. That's how it is. It's a throwdown fight. No, that belongs to me and that's mine. Look at David. I used to sit in first service. The lion, David, could take down a giant because he killed a lion and he killed a bear. You ever read the story about how he killed the, how he killed the lion? He tells us how he killed the lion, right? He said, the lion took a sheep and I ran after him and I tried to get the sheep back. And when I took the sheep back, the lion reared at me. And when the lion reared at me, I grabbed him by the beard and smote him on the head. So God's like, that lion is running off with something that belongs to you. Does that matter to you? Well, God, get it back for me. God, get it back for me. No, go and fight for what belongs to you. Fight for what belongs to you. Take your rightful place. And David said, look, I wasn't looking for a fight. I was just trying to get back with what belonged to me. But when the enemy reared at me, I grabbed the brother by the beard and I gave him a whack on the head. Which again is what? Up close and personal. This fight, you don't think, David, you'd think you'd be afraid when grabbing a lion by the beard? I mean, have you ever seen a lion? I don't know if I'd grab a lion by the beard. I'd go, I don't know, I'm going to miss that sheep. I, you know. I used to like him. He was one of my favorite speckled ones, but, you know, I'm not too sure this is worth the risk. You know? But David wouldn't yield anything. We have to have that same kind of attitude in pursuit of what God has for us. We have to be willing to endure the emotional pain that it takes to discover. It's uncomfortable. You have to fight. You have to gnaw. You have to go against yourself. You have to dismantle the way that you think and the way that you feel. And you have to press in. What am I not seeing? What am I not understanding? What are you saying? You have to go with that uncomfortability and press into that. And then you have to pursue what's yours. You have to to fight and contend for what God has promised you. You have to fight for it. It's amazing, right? You start doing a vision, you start stepping out in faith, or you start doing what God, and your whole world blows up. Isn't it crazy? I don't know if you all have experienced that. I've experienced that on multiple occasions that is very familiar to me now. Every time I step out and say, this is what the Lord wants to do, and I step out to do it, all of a sudden, everything in my perimeter just goes boom. And I have to deal with this and deal with this and deal with this and deal with this. Why? The enemy's trying to keep me distracted from doing what God has told me to do. What God wants. It's normal. So then I got to fight to get back on course. 
hidden for us. So we have this, we have this idea that we don't, we don't pursue it. We're self-interested. A lot of times Christians don't want what God has for them because they're too self-interested. You have the parable of the seeds, right? The sower, two of them gained, two of them actually bloomed. Two failed, two bloomed, but only one produced the harvest. The second one that produced the bloom was choked out because of the cares of this life. There are Christians that have all the potential to bloom, yet the cares of this life choke them out. We get too distracted, too consumed. I understand. I pay rent. I pay bills too. Somewhere along the line, if you want destiny, you have to carve out the time. You don't make time, you take it. And you either take it in the morning or you take it in the evening because that's pretty much the only place you're going to get it. So whether you're a dawn breaker, get up earlier. I tend to be the night watcher. That's more me. I'm more of a late night guy, right? I'm not the dawn breaker. I'm like, oh. I'll stand around like rubbing my eyes and drinking coffee. And all of a sudden it's nine o'clock in the morning. I'm like, and I got up at six. In three hours, I walked around in a fog, not knowing where to go. But at night, I'm very clear. So it doesn't matter whether, whether you break with the dawn or whether you, you watch in the night. You have to find a margin where you're actually seeking God, pursuing God, developing yourself, and pursuing the vision that God gave you. You have to create the margin for it, or it isn't going to happen. Even to discover it, you have to create the margin for it. Our failure, our willingness to pursue it, our failure, and our willingness to follow basic instructions. Here's what happens. So here's this. Basic instructions before leaving earth. So here's five, the radical five. This is the baseline of all discipleship. It's what we frame our church around. It's what our logo represents. The five dots are these five things. Read your Bible, pray, commit and connect to church, financially give and live on mission. Those five things are mandatory for all believers. Mandatory. Those are the rivers of life that God established. And what happens is, is a lot of times believers won't or don't have a working knowledge of their word. They don't have any semblance of a prayer life. I don't, you know, I'm not telling you you gotta like, pray like, you know, I don't know, but you, you, you know, you, I mean, prayer is just interacting with God, listening, breathing, discussion, communing. There's no communion of prayer at all. They don't commit and connect to church. They won't financially give, and they don't do anything that leads anybody to Jesus, right? So here's a really easy thing to do. You want to lead people to Jesus? Make this commitment. Share Elevate's stream on your Facebook wall for the next 52 weeks, and you will do more evangelism in a year than most Christians do in a lifetime. Most Christians do nothing to reach a person for Jesus, and all we got to do in this generation is push a button with our finger. Share the stream. The gospel's going forth right now. I'm preaching the gospel. I'm preaching kingdom gospel. I'm preaching salvation gospel. The gospel's going forth. All you, and you don't have to do anything. I'm going to bring people to Jesus. What are you going to do? I'm going to share the stream. I'm going to share the stream. And people go, well, shouldn't we be doing more? Of course we should be doing more. But can you at least push the button? Can you push the button? Can you do that? So you have to initiate these rivers in your life. You have to develop yourself with a working knowledge, develop a communing prayer life, develop a relational community in which you're a part of and a functioning part of, begin to financially give and begin to reach people for Jesus. Why? Because we want the upward calling. We want all of these things. God, tell me my destiny. And he's gonna go, read your Bible, pray, commit and connect to church, financially give and live on mission. Well, I know all that, Lord, but tell me my destiny. And he's going to tell you, do the former things, and I will give you the greater things. If you cannot keep up with the footmen, how will you keep up with the horsemen? Right? And so what happens is you want an upward calling. And so God goes, if I give you that upward calling, you don't have any wisdom. You don't have a working knowledge of the word of God. So the upward calling will fail. 
You want an upward calling, but you don't have any communal prayer life with me whatsoever, so the upward calling will fail. You want a communal, you want an upward calling, but you have no communal life within the church. You're not a functioning part of my body, and so therefore the upward calling will fail. You don't financially give, so when the money comes, it's going to be all about you, narcissistic, and eventually it's going to collapse. You want the upward calling, but you don't tell anybody about Jesus, so again, it's a narcissistic focus, and it's all about you, so it's not going to happen. This is what has, that's why those five rivers are important. You have to get those five streams moving. When those five streams are moving in your life, now you qualify for the next level. It's basic instructions. It's the, we call it the radical five because it's the radical minimum standard. It's the minimum standard, right? Rika, you have a minimum standard for your job, don't you? Jeremiah, you're in a profession that requires a minimum standard. Is that right? There's minimum standards for your job. Yet we don't think there's a minimum standard to follow Christ. If yes, you're born again, but again, we're talking about access to destiny. God will give you destiny, but we have to level up. We have to operate in basic obedience, and then he'll give us more. Christian research, researched 15,000 Christians. 87% of them could not identify God's specific purpose for their life. <laughs> I've been there. I understand. But it's hilarious to me because we're the people of destiny we are the people of purpose in the earth. We are the light of the world. We're the inbreakers. We're the, we're the transformers. And nine out, of a ten, nine out of ten of us don't know what it is that we're supposed to do. Nine out of ten. Why is that? We have to find out God's specific purpose for our life. What happens is, I'm not going to read it all because I'm running out of time, but Isaiah 59.1. What separates us from God's purposes? That's really the purpose of this message this morning is to show you so that you can begin to take inventory of your life so that you can get rid of the things, cast aside the weights that beset you. Everything that's in your way, you can get out of it and you can clear the path in order so that you can move into a future. Isaiah 59.1, I won't read it, but it tells us why there's a separation about iniquities and sins. Without Christ, there's iniquities. Iniquities are issues in the bloodline. We're all born of Adam and we all have an iniquity in our bloodline. It causes separation. Adam's sin is the iniquity of our bloodline that has separated us from God. Isaiah 59.1. You have to come to Christ, and when you come to Christ, the iniquity of Adam is removed and you're born again. Then it tells the believer, your sins have hidden the face of God from you, and he can't hear you. What are your sins? You're not sins, say it with me. These are not sins, come on, of condemnation. These are sins of destination. Big difference. There is therefore what? Now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There is nothing that we can be done to condemn you. Romans 8, 1. Either that's true or it's not. So the sins that operate within the life of the believer do not invoke condemnation in a sense of eternal separation, but they do affect your destination. You understand that? Your failures of doing and not doing don't affect God's purpose in, in salvation, but they will affect your destiny in this world. Areas of your life where Jesus isn't Lord. What are these sins? This is a sin right here. This is what we have to reconcile. Jesus is Lord, is he not? We come to Christ. We submit to his lordship. Where? Spiritually. Jesus is Lord of our spirit. So here we're talking to believers. My question is, is he Lord of your time? My question is, is he Lord of your body? My question is, is he Lord of your money? My question is, is he Lord of your talent? My question is, is he Lord of your attitude? Is he Lord of your mindset? We have believers that are born again, and Jesus is not Lord of any other area of their life. They do what they want. They spend what they want. They operate any old way they want. Jesus is not Lord in those areas of their life. That area has to be reconciled. 
Those sinfulness where you are master of your time is a sin against God. You're bought with a price. Does that sin condemn you? Of course that sin doesn't condemn you. But that sin will affect your destiny. You understand that? Who's master of your life? Is Jesus Lord? Then let's make him Lord. Then let's let him be Lord. What do you want to do with my time? What, what do you want from me, Lord? I want two hours a month from you. That's, all, that's like literally what he'll ask of you. He'll literally ask that of you. Oh, God. Okay. You know, here's a minimum standard. You want God to master your time? Serve the church. If all you're doing is serving the church, and I, you know what we get? We get people that complain over two hours a month. Two hours a month to serve Jesus in his house and people complain. You would be amazed how people complain. Oh, well, I just can't possibly do that two hours a month, you know? These are opportunities. Every opportunity that was presented to me, I took it. Every single one when I came born again. You need somebody to take trash out? I'll do it. Need somebody to put the chairs away? I'll do it. The kingdom start is a servant's heart. And if you don't have a servant's heart, you may as well forget it. You may as well forget it. Because there again, it's all about you. It has nothing to do with you. Need somebody to do this? I'll do it. I don't know what I'm doing. Will somebody train me? Yeah, we'll train you. We need a film crew. I have no clue. Don't worry, we'll train you. We need a prayer team. I have no clue. Don't worry, we'll train you. Need somebody to stand over there and collect connection cards. I don't know what I'm doing. Don't worry, we'll train you. Need somebody to help clean up after the service. Don't worry, we'll train you. Need somebody to help with the kids. Don't worry, we'll train you. All you have to do is have a heart. We complain. Oh my gosh, we're the worst. We're the worst. What does that tell you? Jesus Jesus can't ask you for two hours of your time because your time is so important to you and you are the master of your time. This is how people are. I'm just telling you like it is. And if that's you and that convicts you, I'm glad. Because that's the only way you're going to change. People say, well, that's offensive to me when you say that to me. You know who Jesus is? He's the rock of offense. Let me give it to you. It's the word scandalon in the Greek. And it means smiting stone or striking stone. So what does it mean? He strikes your pride. He strikes your arrogance. He strikes your attitude. Everything that is opposed to his will, he will strike it. And if you don't want to pursue him, you can stay on the margins and you don't ever have to worry about Jesus striking anything in your life because he won't. He won't. But don't expect much. The Bible says double-minded. Don't expect to receive anything from God. It's fine. There are a lot of believers that never, they, they don't know anything about the rebuke or the correction of God. They don't know anything about it. Do you know why? Because they've never drawn near enough. They stay on the perimeter. But when you draw near enough, then all of a sudden the invocation of God becomes in your life and his love for you overwhelms you and he looks at you and says, I love you too much and because you want this, I want this for you more than you want it. I want to change you. That's how it works. Is he Lord of your time? Is he Lord of your talent? Can he ask you to give something of yourself that, that, that you're good at? Your attitude, your body, our body in our, in our American culture, we don't want to say this. This is a problem. This is a huge problem in the United States, in millennial churches. They do not want to preach righteousness when it comes to us possessing our bodies with honor. Does it condemn you? It doesn't condemn you. Will it send you to hell? No, but it's going to make some hell on earth. You know, we don't say that it's wrong to live with your boyfriend. We don't say that it's wrong. We don't say these things. You can do it if you want to. Let me just be clear. You can do it. But the problem with this is that God's honor cannot come over the relationship because of the status that it's in. You understand that? Do you know how many people have gotten married in this church? Because, not because I go up to them and I confront them and go, hey, 
you know you're living with your boyfriend. I don't really, personally, I'm just going to be real. I don't care. I really don't care. It's not my life, it's yours. You know, I'm the messenger. All I am is to say, hey, this is what the Lord wants. This is what you need to do. I'm not the enforcer. The Holy Spirit is the enforcer. He's the administrator and the governor of the kingdom, not me. So I just tell you. Now people come to me and they've gotten, they've gotten married here. Not because I told them to get married. They're like, hey, we'd like to get married. I'm like, yeah, sure. No, when, when do you want to do it? I'm like, you know, I've known you guys for a while, whatever. And they're like, well, we want to do it this afternoon. I ended up marrying people right after services on some Sundays, just immediately, just because they want to make it right with God, right? And they plan a ceremony afterward, but they're like, no, we need to get this right with God. You know, this is wrong. And you know, every two, the, I can name four or five people, and to every single one of them, the response is always the same. Our relationship has changed so much for the better. And I'm like, of course it has, because God can honor it now. You're putting him in a position where he wants to honor it, but he can't. He's looking at you going, I would really love to honor that relationship, but the circumstance that you've created there, I cannot honor it rectify the matter and I will honor it. Every single one of them, the honor comes upon their home and they don't even know. They're just like, whoa, right? So it's just, it's just the right thing that we have to understand this. We have a millennial generation with millennial pastors who don't have the guts to say it. Just say it. I didn't write the book, man. You know, don't shout me down. I mean, I didn't write it, but he expects it to be said. And this, this, this has got to be understood within our churches. It's not just our time. It's our body. It's the way that we handle ourselves. The way that we, it's a testimony. I mean, there are churches that have leadership, leadership, where they're living together. Living together. In leadership. Right? I don't care if you live together, but guys, look, don't be in leadership if you're living together. Because you're supposed to exemplify the bo- to the body of Christ. You understand that? That's all I'm saying. I'm not trying to beat people up. I've been there. I've done that. Have I fornicated? I fornicated. Thank God I didn't fornicate with my wife before we got married. That was the first pure relationship I ever had was with my wife. The first one. That's right. But before that, there was no such thing as purity. So I understand. I understand. But with her, I tried to say, okay, this is what Jesus wants. I don't understand it. This is, I mean, my, my brother was mocking me, making fun of me. I remember. So Neil, if you're watching, I remember. It's like, so you guys haven't like had sex at all? I'm like, no. It's like, you've been dating for what, like a year, a year and a half? Like, yeah. And he goes, and you've not had sex with her at all? I said, no. He's like, not anything? I said, nothing. He, he just couldn't believe it. He, he made some jokes to me, which I won't repeat, but nonetheless. <laughs> he, couldn't, he couldn't believe it. He's like, I, mean, I don't understand this. The Lord will not answer you on the, on the greater things until we are willing to obey on the, on the lesser things. Listen, if it convicts you, just admit it and quit it. So this is all about. It's all God expects. He doesn't expect to get beat you up. He just says, look, here's the error, guys. Can we correct the mistake? One plus three does not equal five. Can we stop trying to say that one plus three equals five? Can we do the math correctly? Can we operate the equation correctly? Can we, can we do this the right way? This is really what the heart of what God wants is just for us to do what is right. It's what he told Cain, right? If you would do what is right, you'll be accepted. But if you don't, sin will consume you. Isn't that what he told Cain? Sin lies at the door, Cain. It's waiting to consume you. If you do what is right, there's no problem here. You're accepted. All things will flow in your favor. But if you don't, sin wants to pounce on you. Sin wants to consume you. What's he saying? The choice is yours, dude. It's literally what he's saying. It's up to you. 
I don't want the sin to pounce on you, but if you don't do what's right, it's going to happen. This is why there's all this dysfunction in our lives. And what God wants to do is reconcile the dysfunction so that we can have some kind of positive flow in our life. We have to have the freedom from sin. Sin's wrecked us. We all have issues. Okay, so we have the issue of dealing with our iniquities and our sins, our foolishness. Then we have to deal with the pain and the damage that sin has caused us, and we all got it. I'm president of the Sinfully Dysfunctional Club. I'm president of the local Jesus Freak chapter, but let me come to the head of the line and be president of the Sinfully Dysfunctional Club. I am, I am a candidate of God's restoration. I'm a person of God's restoration. I'm a son of the highest, but I've had damage, wounds, lies, traumas, pains, rips, tears in my soul that I didn't put there, life put there. And if I didn't deal with those things, those things would continue to affect me. You want destiny? Deal with the misalignments and deal with the sin. What binds you? Fear, hopelessness, guilt, shame, lies. What binds you? Be honest. Be honest. Nothing's going to change unless you're honest. Foolish Galatians, what has bewitched you or who has bewitched you that you have twi- that you've turned from the truth? There are things that turn us away from what is true. Pains, traumas, wounds, things, lies. We know God loves us, but we don't believe he has anything. There's, these, there's this disconnect within us, things that dominate our lives. Another reason, last part here. Let me see where I can end this. <laughs> kind of jumped the rails. It's all good. We don't take our cues from the culture. We take our cues from the kingdom. That's important. God's will for our lives is that we not operate with the same mentality and attitude that the world has. We operate with an attitude and a mentality of his kingdom. God's got a hope and a future for you. God's got a hope and a future for you. Just because the economy shifts or the world shifts does not mean that you will shift. That doesn't mean that something's going to affect you. We are people of faith. People don't receive, get their destiny because they don't believe that they don't, they don't, they're confused about who they are or what they should be doing. Cast aside every way. This is the whole idea of narrowing your focus, learning to say no to the things that don't matter and say yes to the things that do. I just read um, Warren Buffett. Anybody know Warren Buffett? I mean, you all know Warren Buffett, right? So he just did a New Year's statement of some kind and I was reading it and uh, keys to success or something like that. And he said that successful people learn to say no. And he was talking about all the things that he says no to. And it's pretty much just the rule of saying no to everything that's outside of the vision that God has set before you. Saying no to those things. It's not the key is not in saying yes to everything. It's in saying no, even if it's to a good idea. It has to fit the focus. It has to fit the time. Don't be confused. Get the vision and don't be confused. Don't jump the rails. Stay on track. Don't be, go compare. You, are, you cannot be someone that you are not. You want to be that person, but you're not that person. Be the best you that you are, right? The Bible says this, measuring yourself by yourself and comparing yourself among yourselves, you're not wise. We're, not gonna, we're all different. We need to celebrate our differences. We need to understand who we are, what God has for us, and we need to be the best that that we can be. And we need to keep pressing into that and not trying to be what everybody else is. Whether we're a captain of 50 or a captain of 1,000, whether a captain of hundreds or captains of, captains of 10,000, we need to be okay with the influence level that God has for us. But pursue higher, say, how do I get there? It's a whole other story. 
Christians stay in survival, they settle in success and never pursue significance. What does that mean? We stay in survival because there are areas of our life that are incongruent. We stay at this level of survival because there are areas of our life that we have not put under his lordship or there are areas in that radical five or in any of those areas where Jesus isn't Lord that are not congruent. So therefore, the blessing of God cannot be there. However, his provision will be and God will always provide for you. So you're going to survive. That's always the good news. God's people are going to survive. But living in survival is not fun. What will happen if you begin to line your life up congruently, make Jesus Lord of your time, talent, treasure, body, thinking, attitude, begin to, begin to flow the rivers of the radical five, it will happen. You will rise to a level of success. You will move out of survival and into success. You will, be, you will begin to have a lot more stability. You will have more resources, resources not just for you, but resources so that you can share them. There'll be more resources and But from the level of success, you're supposed to pursue significance. So Christians will stay in survival because they won't, they won't align themselves with what God has, or they begin to taste the success that he has, and they don't want to go beyond that. We're not supposed to do that. We're supposed to go higher. So here it is. I'm closing right here. So this is what I want to give you. This is the takeaway, the big takeaway. If you got a camera or whatever, I don't know if I misspelled anything, just take a picture of that because this is really what it's all about. What I'm trying to get you to do is examine some areas of your life so that we can line them up this year. An unexamined life is not worth living, Socrates said. Anybody know who Socrates was? Anybody know? He was killed for what? You know what he was killed for? Asking questions. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. They killed him for asking, basically, they killed him for asking questions. And so one of, his, one of the statements that he made was an unexamined life is not worth living. And so what we want the Lord to do is we want to give the Holy Spirit an opportunity to examine our lives. These are basic questions. You can ask any question of your own, but the goal is not necessarily this set of questions. The goal is to just ask the questions in your heart and begin to look at the areas where there's no congruency. Rising to the person in the level of your birth and to becoming the person that you're created to be. What areas of your life do you... Do, do you where, what areas of your life are you in charge? Basically, let's put it like that. Where are you still in charge? Where can Jesus not tell you anything? What areas of your life do you complain if anything's asked of you, of the Lord? Where does sin dominate you? Where's the fear, the guilt, shame, lies, any, anything like that? Where do you feel something that dominates you? Stepping into your future, every time I do, I just get gripped with fear, uncertainty, whatever, anything like that. Where are you surviving? What area of your life are you surviving? You may not be surviving financially, but you may be, after, you may be only surviving emotionally. Whatever area you're in, if there's an area of your life where you're only surviving, identify that. Where have you settled? Where's, some, where's the place where you just said, I just don't feel like I want to go anymore and I want to settle? We want to challenge these areas. What are you copying from the world? Where are you confused where are you complaining? And here's my all-time favorite. Where are you a coward? I've spent my whole life confronting my cowardice, so I'm very acquainted with this one. Where are you a coward? This is, this is about spiritual growth, and it's about intentional transformation. So the purpose of this message is to kind of show you some things and to challenge you some things and to call you higher. And if you're watching this stream and you don't know Jesus as Lord and you've never given your life to Jesus, this moment, this time, this is for you. The Bible says simply this. You are lost and you are hopeless and helpless without Christ. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every single one of us is sin, sinful. We've all fallen short. We're hopeless. We're helpless. We can't save ourselves. And the Bible says this. 
The wages or the penalty or the payment of that sin is death, eternal separation from God. But the gift of God is life in Christ Jesus. And it tells us that we can come out of our sin and we can come into life in Christ Jesus if we will believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and he has risen from the dead. God has made salvation very, very simple. It's an act of faith and a movement of the heart. Just because the act is simple does not mean it's not significant. Doesn't, just because the act is simple doesn't mean that it didn't cost someone a lot to, put, to provide that. It's like an elevator. You get in the elevator, you push a button, you go to the top floor. Very simple process, but it costs someone a lot of money to install that elevator. Salvation costs a lot in order to make it simple. And so Jesus offers it to you in the most simplest way that he can possibly do. And he just simply asks you to believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. And so we're going to pray together. And what we ask you to do is pray with us. Open your heart and pray with us. And the Lord will do the rest. So let's pray. Just say, Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Savior. And I need a Savior. So I open my heart to you, Jesus. And I ask you to come inside. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to heal me. I ask you to restore me. And I ask you to repurpose my life. All that I am, I give to you. And all that you are, I receive as mine. From this day forward, I choose to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that, we celebrate with you. We honor you. We bless you. Amen. We're going to say one more prayer, and then we're going to dismiss, and we're going to end the stream. Let me just speak this over you. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine down upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you in every way. And may he give you peace. And forever may you live within his favor in Jesus' name. God loves you. We love you. Have a wonderful week.